We are continuing our teaching series in 1 Corinthians. It's kind of funny to say that because we just started it. Uh, and we're calling it Correcting Carnality in Christ's Church. And one of the things that we, we've been learning, at least last week and this week today, is that you know, despite the sinful carnality that was in this church at Corinth, Paul was always thankful to God for the grace that God had given to this body of believers in Christ Jesus. That was verse 4 that we looked at last week. And I was just astonished at that thankfulness in the midst of such difficulty and struggle with the church. Of course, we learned that we ought to be thankful in the midst of just about any situation. There really isn't any kind of circumstance or situation where, where it's okay for us not to be thankful to the Lord. And Paul was, was thankful for the grace that had been given to these believers, for the common grace, for the saving grace, for the subsequent ongoing grace that God gives to His children. It's grace for every, every moment. He was thankful for all this grace. And in verses, oh man, what is it? Basically, five through nine, what Paul does is he illustrates this subsequent grace by describing the many grace-given blessings uh, this church had in Christ. So God continues to give them grace, and it was in the form of a great many blessings. And of course, this is not a comprehensive, exhaustive list, but... There are some things here that he describes that, that are the consequence of this subsequent grace from God. And he gave this reminder of these grace-given blessings in an effort to kind of remind them of what they have in Christ and to soften their hearts before he transitions into those heavy corrections or imperatives, beginning in verse 10. And I counted at least nine grace-given blessings listed in this wonderful passage. Last Sunday, we looked at the blessings uh, one through four. We looked at four of them. Do you remember what they were? The blessing of abiding in Christ, the blessing of gospel-centeredness, the blessing of spiritual gifts, the blessing of a glorious future at the return of Christ. This morning, we will focus on the remaining blessings. That would be numbers 5 through 9. If you're not there already, please take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We'll be focused just on two verses today. That's verses 8 and 9. And I think it's befitting that we should pray once more, especially as we enter into this time of worship through the Word. Father, we ask that you help us now, that you would give us subsequent ongoing grace even in this moment and that's the grace to hear your word the grace to comprehend your word the grace to understand your word the grace to apply your word and of course the grace to live it out we pray for that now most of all we pray that you're glorified through this message as you build up your church as you build up the body of christ we humble ourselves, place ourselves under your authority and tutelage right now. We ask for the Holy Spirit to work in us, and we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Let's, let's 
get back to work here and pick up where we left off last week. This is the fifth grace-given blessing. Number five, it is the blessing of perseverance. We see this in verse 8a. Paul puts it like this to the Corinthians. Speaking of Christ, he says, Christ, who will sustain you to the end? Stop there. I would say after saving grace, this is undoubtedly the second greatest grace-given blessing from God, the perseverance. It's got to be. It has to do with God using His omnipotent power to sustain us till the very end of our lives so that we finish the race of faith and cross the finish line into the glorious presence of Jesus Christ our Lord. This is, as the fifth point of Calvinism rightly states, the perseverance of the saints. It's not just a Calvinistic doctrine. It is a biblical doctrine. And I wonder if we all this morning realize that apart from the grace-given blessing of divine perseverance, if we realize that without it we would never make it on our own. That's how essential this blessing is. We don't make it on our own. We don't keep the faith. We don't cross the finish line unless God does that for us and in us. Do we realize that our, our faith and walk in Christ would be destroyed? Peter was about to be brutally sifted by Satan, but Jesus said, I have prayed for thee that thy faith fail not, Luke 22, verse 32. Of course, that's the King James. Get the idea there that as Peter is about to experience strong adversarial, a strong adversarial attack and sifting from Satan, Jesus promises him and prophesies to him that you will make it through this. Your faith will stay together because you're a super strong guy. No, because I have prayed for you. I have intervened on your behalf. And that is how you will make it through this attack and continue to trust in me. If it isn't for Christ's intervention in Peter's life in that very moment, Peter goes south for the winter. He doesn't make it. Look, we finish the race and cross the finish line because of God, not because of us. We are not the author and finisher of our faith. Jesus is. Hebrews 12, 2. We are not sovereign. God is sovereign. We are not Mighty, God is mighty. We are not powerful, God is powerful. We are not strong, God is strong. And guess what? We are not faithful. God is faithful. God is faithful. And this is how, why and how we make it to the end. It's because of God. Our salvation is rock solid because it is in the solid rock. 
the chief cornerstone, Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2.20, amen? Quite frankly, and I'll say this with boldness and humility, God is bound by His everlasting covenant to us. The good work He began in us, He is obligated to complete, Philippians 1.6. And He will surely do so because He is righteous and immutably faithful. Man doesn't keep His word. We make oaths and we break oaths. We are defaulters. But God keeps His word. God upholds His oaths. God fulfills His promises. God keeps His covenant. Our record is imperfect, but His record is impeccable. Listen to what the canons of Dort say about the perseverance of the saints under Article 3. Because of the remnants of sin dwelling in believers and also because of the temptations of the world and Satan, those who have been converted could not remain standing in this grace if left to their own resources. But God is faithful, mercifully strengthening them in the grace conferred on them and powerfully preserving them in that grace until the very end. Hallelujah. Amen. The scriptures are replete with references concerning the certainty of our salvation. John 6, 39, uh, John 10, 27 to 30, and Romans 8, 28 to 30 are just a, a few passages that, that guarantee the saints will persevere and cross the finish line. It's just a handful of great verses. There's many, many more. And I'll tell you, if there was ever a moment when the people of God could lose their salvation, it would have been here in Corinth. It would have been at this very moment in history. This church was a disaster. It was a disaster. But what did Paul say to this disastrous church filled with carnality and sin and selfishness and divisions? What did he say to this particular church? Be careful, you're going to lose your salvation. No, that's not at all what he said. He said, who will sustain you till the end? Wow. Wow. Nothing can upend God's salvific power and salvific purposes. Nothing. He saves to the uttermost. Hebrews 7.25. That's a way of saying that he saves as far as salvation can go. He saves and he saves and he saves to the outer limits. Now make no mistake, carnality is displeasing to God. God hates sin, hates wickedness, Psalm 5.4. But he does not despise his people. He has loved us from eternity past and will always love us. And He demonstrated His great love for us by sending His Son into the world. What's the verse that encapsulates that best? John 3.16. Sent Him into the world to be born of a virgin, to live a, a perfect life of obedience, to die on the cross for our sins, to be buried, to settle our accounts, and to 
rise from the dead on the third day for our justification to not only save us from the coming judgment of King Jesus, 2 Timothy 4.1, but to bring us into loving fellowship with the Father and with the Son and with the Holy Spirit. He redeemed us with the blood of Jesus, 1 Corinthians 6.20. We are His forever and ever and ever. We are currently enjoying spiritual fellowship with with the Godhead through faith, but in the future, we will enjoy physical fellowship. God will sustain us to the end so that we can finally meet Christ face to face and be with Him forever. 1 Corinthians 13, 12. Paul knew this church had some immature carnal members. Every church has them. He knew this. He knew that they were still clinging to the world, but he also knew it had been blessed with divine perseverance, that this church and the true believers in this church would actually make it to the finish line regardless of this carnality, regardless of this giving in to temptation and this struggle with sin. He knew they would make it, and he was thankful for this. What a thing to be thankful for when you're addressing a sinful carnal church. That was the fifth blessing, the perseverance of the saints. Let's move to the sixth, number six, the blessing of pardon, verse 8b. Listen to what he says. He says, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Stop right there. The day of our Lord is an eschatological term that refers to the second advent or the return of Christ. Paul is telling the Corinthian church that it will stand guiltless when Jesus returns to crush his enemies and consummate his kingdom to judge the living and the dead. How is this even possible with such carnality present in this church? How how is it possible? It's kind of a mind-blowing thing to tell a sinful church. You're going to stand guiltless. But we're carnal. You're going to stand guiltless. But we struggle with sin. You're going to stand guiltless. But we have infighting and we can't get along at times. You're going to stand guiltless. Well, you know, there's things that I do and and struggle with. And sometimes I give in to the temptation. And and I find myself doing things that I I really don't want to do. But but I kind of enjoy them in the moment. And and, and then I realize it's wrong. You're going to stand guiltless. But I kick my dog. You're going to stand guiltless. Maybe the dog deserved it. Well, we really don't want to reduce it down to something so trivial as that, but literally, you will stand guiltless in the day of the Lord. I love what Mark Taylor said, because this is just a a mind-blowing thing to be thankful for in this moment. Verse 8b is truly, uh, truly a remarkable statement, since the Corinthians were anything but guiltless in their behavior. Amen? This is not typically what we would say to a sinful church, these things. What was it that would make them guiltless in the day of our Lord, which is essentially judgment day? It wasn't their walk, right? How could it be their walk? They were carnal. Not all of them, but a great many were carnal and sinful and fleshy. It couldn't have been their walk because these believers struggled with carnality. It was their faith 
in the person and work of Jesus Christ. When they heard the gospel, the Spirit regenerated them, and they put their trust in the Lord. They believed in the gospel. They believed in the Lord Jesus Christ for their salvation. And at that moment, the penalty for their sins was imputed to Christ, and the righteousness of Christ was imputed to them. We call it the great exchange. The Father granted them forgiveness, granted them divine pardon, and He justified them once and for all. That is to declare them right. Think of it like this. God punished sinless Jesus so He could pardon sinners like us. Christ took our punishment and we receive pardon because He took our punishment. That is an amazing Reality, that is too good to be true, and that is why we call the gospel the good news, because that is exactly what has happened. The perfect one is slaughtered because of our sin, and as a result, we are pardoned. Not because of what we do, but because we believe in Jesus Christ. We are trusting in His person and work. That is the gospel. No other religion in the world offers anything like this. It's always about earning. Always. Even Roman Catholicism, which claims to be a big, big branch of Christianity, is, is half, it's about half about believing and half about doing. And anytime you mingle any doing into this for our justification and for our righteousness, you have now left the gospel. Galatians chapter 1. You are preaching a different gospel. It's by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to Scripture alone, for the glory of God alone. Amen? That is the gospel. They had forgiveness. They had pardon. They had been justified. God punished Christ so He could pardon them. This ongoing carnality did not ruin their righteousness, nor did it render their justification null and void. This is why Roman Catholicism has Jesus still on the cross because we continue to sin, so he's constantly having to keep making atonement for our ongoing sins. It's a daily justification. We, we, we're Protestants. We don't have Jesus on the cross. He left the cross, went into a tomb, and rose, and now he's seated at the right hand of God. He's not crucified any longer. It's over. It's a finished work. This ongoing carnality in this church did not... Boy, it screwed the church up, no doubt. But it didn't ruin their righteousness. It didn't void out their justification. It had no impact on these grace-given blessings either. But it did have an impact on their personal lives. It did have an impact on their church. Why? Because sin kills, Romans 6.23. So we must learn to hate it. We must learn to put it to death. The fact that our sin necessitated the horrific, bloody, gory, terrible, terrible death of Jesus Christ should be enough to change our minds about sin. fact of the matter is there is no way to fully remove the presence of sin in a church we are sinners saved by grace we still sin 
But this does not negate our responsibility to deal with sin. We must crush it with the Holy Spirit's power. We must crucify it on the cross of Christ. If we will regularly assess ourselves and deal with our own sins like we're supposed to do, this will save us and the body of Christ a lot of trouble. There will be no need for potentially embarrassing church discipline. Matthew 18, 15 to 20. It's not fun to have to be brought to the elders because you won't deal with your own sin. That's not, that's not an enjoyable moment. It's not an enjoyable moment when, when you don't even repent in that instance, when you're before the elders and you just dig in and say, I don't care. Now to be, have to be brought before the church, that's embarrassing. It's embarrassing to have any of our brothers and sisters come to us and point things out. If we would just keep short accounts and deal with our own sins, judgment begins in the house of the Lord. If we would just deal with ourselves, then we, in a way, a technical way, would not have to burden the rest of the church with our foolishness and potentially suffer embarrassing discipline. We are to, to be confessional. Every day we are to spend time in prayer, calling on the Holy Spirit to reveal sin. And usually Christians know what they're doing. So it's not like, Holy Spirit, can you tell me what I've been doing? I usually know what I'm doing right at the moment of impact. But we should spend time in prayer throughout the day, confessing our sin and dealing with our sins. That way the body can continue to do that for itself and we don't have to, I don't have to have Kelly step into my life and try to help pull me out of something. And sometimes we're involved in sin that we don't realize we're in and that's where you need a brother or sister to come in and intervene. But for the most part, what we typically do is get ourselves involved in sin and then allow it to have a, a very negative impact on everyone around us. And that's not what we should do. And here's the deal. Paul knew this church had some immature carnal members who were still clinging to the world. He knew this. But he also knew this church had been blessed with divine pardon. And he was thankful to God for this. That the pardon was 100% complete. And when I hear that, that does not cause me to say to myself, well, who cares? I can do what I want. I'm pardoned. That's not the way a true believer responds to their sin. They don't look at the pardoning of God as a license to do as we please. I am so thankful that I have been once and for all pardoned, but that does not incite or encourage me to just carry on in ridiculous sin and bog down our church and go through discipline and Knowing that I'm pardoned actually does a reverse effect on me. It makes me want to live for Christ, for the one who suffered, bled, and died for my pardon. To know that I'm pardoned is an exhortation or encouragement for me to live a better life for God. It's the unbeliever who says, who cares, I'm pardoned. That's the unbeliever's attitude. We have a new nature, and the new nature wants to obey God, it wants holiness, it wants righteousness, it wants these things. And of course it wages war against the flesh, but the true believer never says, oh, who cares? I'm forgiven. 
And I have met people who profess Christ who have that attitude, and I am convinced they are not in the fold. That is a scary place to be, that you think you're pardoned and you think you're okay with sin. That is a terrifying place to be. They don't know that, but we do. That's as Colby preached about a millennium ago. Now, actually, it was like in 2014 or 13. We preached that sermon called The Almost Christian. One who thinks they're a Christian and, and is, is happy that they're pardoned, but really doesn't care about their sin. That's a terrible place to be. You're better off being a pagan who's never heard of God in Thailand than to be someone who has been blessed and saturated with gospel preaching. You've been part of a church your whole life or for a season, a good gospel preaching church, and you hear the gospel all the time, and somehow you, 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 just, you just grab onto that pardoning and that forgiveness, but then you live a life of licentiousness and debauchery because you think you're okay because you've been pardoned. You're better off never knowing God. And that's impossible because he has made himself known even through creation. I'll tell you what, Paul is, is super thankful that these people have been, he's not thankful for their carnality and ridiculousness, but he's thankful that they've been pardoned. But he was equally determined to correct their carnal behavior because it dishonors the Lord. It disintegrates the fellowship. It disables the mission of the church. It disenfranchises outsiders. Now let's move to our seventh blessing. Number seven, the blessing of God's faithfulness, verse 9a. And he just puts it like this, God is faithful. Paul's anticipation of their guiltlessness on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ is entirely consistent with their present status as the church of God, verse 1a, as sanctified or set apart in Christ Jesus, verse 1b, and as called saints, verse 1c. And his confidence in this guiltlessness was grounded in the immutable, unchanging truth that God is faithful, right here in this verse. The church at Corinth had many grace-given blessings, but what kept these blessings intact? What, what, what caused them to persevere? What, what you know... What, what showered these blessings, kept these blessings in place? Was it their faithfulness? Was it their performance? Was it their piety? No, God is faithful. If it was based on them and their performance and their faithfulness, do you think they would have made it? Do you think that they would have been able to keep these things in place? No, they were already proving to be unfaithful as they gave themselves once again over to carnality or never left it behind in the first place. God is faithful. God is faithful when we're not faithful. God can't be anything but faithful. It's not in His nature to be unfaithful. He has to be faithful. Is he obligated to be faithful? No, he just has to be faithful by his own nature. Perfection brings faithfulness, and he is perfect. 
Now, it is true that some of God's blessings were contingent upon, let's say, Israel's obedience. If the Jews remained faithful to the Lord, they would remain in the promised land and enjoy its innumerable blessings or benefits. And yet, if they served other gods, idols, and refused to repent, God would, in a sense, nullify this land blessing, at least for a season. Was Israel faithful? Did they uphold their end of the land covenant? No. As a consequence, God used the Assyrians to remove the ten tribes from the land in roughly 720 B.C. That's 2 Kings 17.6. And he used later on the Chaldeans, that's Nebuchadnezzar primarily, or the Babylonians to remove the southern tribe in 605, in 597, and in 586 B.C. God removed that southern tribe, which is Judah, over the course of several years. Daniel chapter 1, verses 1 to 4, 2 Chronicles chapter 36, verse 10, and of course, 2 Kings chapter 25, 1 through 21. It was such a blessing that we went through Daniel years ago because I'm always reminded since we went through Daniel of some of these things because they were Daniel was part of that uh, God removing the people from the promised land. Now, here's the kicker. Okay, so we just stated that some grace-given blessings were contingent on Israel's faithfulness, right? The grace-given blessings Paul describes in verses 1 to 9, or actually 5 to 9, they're not contingent upon our faithfulness. They are new covenant blessings based on Christ's faithfulness and merit. They're not based on our merit. They're not based on our faithfulness. They're based on the person and work of Jesus Christ. They're new covenant blessings. They're really one way, if you think about it. They come from God to His people. And, of course, we reciprocate with with love, obedience, and adoration of Him. But the moment that we switch to carnality, He doesn't say, oh, the blessing's gone. The blessings remain. Christ secured these blessings for us through His perfect obedience, through His sacrificial death, and his victorious, through His victorious resurrection. And these blessings are appropriated to us through faith, not through performance. If we believe, the blessings are ours. If we perform uh, in a way that falls short of God's expectation for His people, and we're continuing to believe, the blessings are still ours. The fact is, when we take hold of Christ by faith, everything that is in Him, all of the promises and blessings of God, which are amen, they become ours, 2 Corinthians 1.20. And God will dispense these blessings to His children because He is faithful. Mark Taylor wrote that God is faithful means that He is worthy of our belief, trust, and devotion. Amen? I'll tell you, God's faithfulness inspires righteous living from us and joy in these sorts of things. It produces joy in our hearts because we know that God loves us through Christ in a way that can't be shaken or shook off that He will continue to bless even when we fail. Paul knew this church had some immature carnal members who were clinging to the world, 
But he also knew it had been blessed with God's faithfulness. The faithfulness of God is a blessing. It is a, a grace-given blessing. And Paul was thankful to God for bestowing this blessing and all the other blessings on this church. Let's move to the eighth blessing. Number eight, the blessing of being called, verse 9b. It says, by whom you were called. God called these Corinthians unto many things. I'll just go over four big ones because the calling of this church and body of Christians and the calling of every Christian and every body, there, there's so many callings within the calling. And I just want to cover the four big ones. Uh, we, we would never have time in one sermon to talk about every facet of our calling or every expression of our calling from God. So the, let's just talk about the four big ones. First, obviously, the starting point here would be that He called them unto salvation through the Holy Spirit and gospel. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 13 to 14. We're using other verses in the Bible because the truth is universal. It applies to these Corinthians, to the Thessalonians, to us, to everyone called them unto salvation. Did you know that salvation is a divine calling? Romans 1.6 It is God calling the sinner out of darkness into His marvelous light. 1 Peter 2.9 The gospel goes out to all, but not everyone who hears it is called unto salvation. Matthew 22, verse 14. The text there says, Many are called, but few are chosen. Only those who are appointed to eternal life are called to salvation in an effectual way. They alone will trust in Jesus. Acts 13, 48. The Corinthians were among those appointed and called unto salvation. They were the genuine article. I know it's hard to believe, but they were the real deal. If we believe the gospel, if we are trusting in Jesus, it shows that we were appointed and called by the sovereign God. Faith is the evidence of our calling unto salvation. If we have faith, it shows that we've been called. And so is the seal or inner presence of the Holy Spirit, and so are our good works. Good works are an expression of our faith and the reality of our salvation. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13, of course, James 2, 17, if your faith has not works, it is dead. So they were called unto salvation. Second, God called them unto holiness. 2 Timothy 1, 9, to be holy as God Himself is holy. 1 Peter 1, 16, to live a, a life that is set apart as saints Romans chapter 1, verse 7, and of course, 1 Corinthians 1, 1, we just learned that a week or two ago. To walk, to be called unto holiness, is to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Ephesians 4, 1, we are likewise called unto holiness to be, listen to this verse, to be holy, not impure. 1 Thessalonians 4, 7, it says it just like that. They had received a calling from God unto salvation and a calling unto holiness to live set apart saintly lives, to live holy lives, to live righteous, obedient lives. And if we are in Christ, if we have been called unto salvation, 
We too have been called unto this holiness to live in purity, not impurity. Third, God called them unto glory. 2 Peter 1, 3. This is a twofold glory. They were called first and foremost to bring glory to God in all things. No matter what you do, do it all for the glory of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31. And I've been talking to my niece quite a bit lately. She's seeking the Lord on this next season in her life. And sometimes I think it's very hard to figure out what God wants you to do. And I can simplify it for you. Do whatever brings Him glory. If what you're aiming to do can bring Him glory, do it with all your might. If it can't, don't do it. It's that simple. Well, what college do I go to? Who should I marry? Well, the scripture is pretty clear on these things. Go to a college that doesn't indebt you because debt is to be a slave unto some bank. Oh, I don't know what woman to choose. Choose one who believes in Jesus more than you, who lives a righteous life. I mean, the answers are in scripture, but at the end of the day, we can really simplify the process by that simple statement. We are to do all things for his glory. And if what you're aiming to do won't bring him glory because it's in a field that you ought not be in, don't do it. If you can serve him and honor him and glorify him in this endeavor, do it. It's like God gives us full license. Just bring me glory in what you're aiming to do. And if that's what you can do, then go do it. I, you don't have to figure out the little minutia. Don't you love that? And there's a great many things that we sometimes want to do that just aren't going to bring God glory. They're just going to bring us trouble, amen? And those are the things that we stay away from. I could give you a hundred examples of that. Well, I really want to bring you glory tonight at the bar. I don't know. I don't think so, you know. You show up with a Bible and an hour later you're on a table, woo! It's just, ah, not good. You think about where you're going. Think about what you're doing. Think about your interactions with people. Oh, I want to be with this guy, gals would say, and he's a lech. He's not going to help you bring glory to God. Bye, Fred. Amen? It's that simple. We are called to bring God glory in all things. In all things. There's not like, well, there's six things we can do where we don't have to be concerned about His glory. If that were the case, then us in our carnal appetites and flesh would only do those six things. Woo, and they're fun. So firstly, we are... And they were called to bring Him glory. We are called to bring Him glory. In fact, God's glory was their chief end. It is the chief end of man. It is the chief end of every believer, right? The Westminster Shorter Catechism. That's the very first point. What is the chief end of man? It is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And then secondly, they were called to glorification. 2 Thessalonians 2.14 says, "...to this God called you through our gospel." so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
So first, bring Him glory. Secondly, you will be glorified. That's what you're called to, to bring Him glory and to be glorified. And of course, we are likewise called unto twofold glory, to bring God glory in all things and to be glorified in heaven and most of all at the resurrection when we receive these new bodies that we've been promised. And this is our hope, isn't it? Can't wait to get rid of this. Can't wait to be in shape. Everyone speculates as to what body you'll have in that moment, right? I've heard this. What? It's like everyone will be 16. What? God has to manage a bunch of teenagers? Well, they'll be perfect, but I don't know what body we'll have. I just know that it's going to be better than what we have. I think we're going to have all the same characteristics, but the restriction of sin and, and the carnality and the flesh will all be gone, and we can just worship Him as He is. So I think what I'm going to do is get in shape. That way, if I die while I'm in shape, that's what I wake up with. Because as it is right now at the resurrection, I'm going to have a hard time getting out of the hole. I'm going to be like, hey, give me a boost. Oh, here comes fat Phil into my glory. Hey, at least I'll be in glory. I'd rather be fat Phil in glory than skinny unbeliever Phil, which is what I was most of my life. Amen? Okay, let's get back to the text. So that was three, right? Glory in all things, glory in the future. Four, this is the other calling. God called them unto heaven, Hebrews 3.1. Heaven was their new destination, their new home. They were to set their minds on heaven, Colossians 3.2. They were to lay up treasures in heaven by investing in, in things that have eternal value like the gospel, like the ministries of the church. We are likewise called unto heaven. The world is not our home. Heaven is our home. Christ is, is there now preparing a place for us. John 14, 3. We likewise should invest not in earthly things, but in spiritual, eternal things. Why? So that our treasures in heaven will be great. Matthew 6, 20. So there's their, the four primary callings that they had, right? Salvation and holiness and what else? Salvation, holiness, um, unto glory and unto heaven. And we have received the same callings and much more, but the other ones are, are just, they're, not real big like this, but they're still very important. Paul knew this church had immature carnal members who were clinging to the world, but he also knew it had been blessed with these great, blessed callings. And since, and listen to this, this is the kicker on these callings, calling to salvation, calling to holiness and glory and heaven and all the other callings, these things, listen to this. Since God is faithful... We just talked about that, right? The blessingness, or the blessedness of God's faithfulness or the blessing of His faithfulness. Since God is faithful, guess what? The gifts and calling are irrevocable. Romans eleven twenty nine. Talk about assurance of salvation. Wow. Paul was incredibly thankful to God for blessing this church with these blessings. Let's move to the ninth and final blessing, number nine, and this one is just, it's just so 
so good and it's not something that we think about. The blessing of shared sonship. The blessing of son, shared sonship. Verse 9c. Listen to what uh, Paul tells the Corinthians here. He says, into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Stop there. Paul gave the Corinthians an example of their blessed divine calling, right? Because that's what this is. You have a calling, and here's one more type of calling that they had received. God had called them into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ the Lord. I like what David Garland wrote here because he puts a little twist on it. And we don't... We don't get to the actual deeper meaning of, of what's said here in this little tiny short verse. We don't get to the meaning unless we have this good commentary that's very insightful. Garland wrote, Paul has in mind their sharing in Christ, which means far more than merely being together as a fellowship of friendly faces. This verse signifies sharing in a sonship derived from the sonship of Christ. That's the meaning of the word fellowship here. It has to do with a, a shared sonship with Christ. Christ is the Son of God, the only begotten Son of God. And, and believers share in that sonship. That is what Paul is saying to the Corinthians here. They literally shared in the sonship of Christ. They had fellowship with God's Son as God's adopted sons and daughters. There's the sonship. If we have been adopted into God's family as His sons and daughters, then we have a type of sonship or daughtership. All believers share in this or in His sonship. All believers have fellowship with God's Son as God's adopted sons and daughters. Now, check this out. Where is God's Son? I'm not talking about His adopted sons. Where is His only begotten Son? In glory, seated at the right hand of the majesty right now. Right? Hebrews 1.3. What else does Hebrews say in the very next chapter in verse 10? Listen to this. God's Son is in glory. We have a shared sonship with Him. Listen to what the author of Hebrews says in the very next chapter in verse 10. God is what? Bringing many sons and daughters to glory. That's us. How is this possible? Because we share in the sonship of the Son. Jesus shares His sonship with us. Therefore, He shares His glory with us. That is what is being said to this carnal church. What a blessing. Wow. I was thinking about this. You know, we're, we're not just sheep. We're not just the people of God. We're not just saints. We're not just believers. We're not just, we're not just disciples. We're not just members or participants in the way, because that's what it was called. Christianity was called in the early days. We're not, we have those titles, and they're beautiful, wonderful titles, but we're not just that. We share in the sonship of Christ. 
We are adopted sons and daughters of the Most High God, of the same Father of the Son, Jesus Christ. What a blessing. Are you kidding me? If this was a charismatic church, you'd be running around with flags. <laughs> Carla used to be part of one. Get busy. He's like, I left that behind. This is incredible. Do we realize that we share in the sonship of Christ? Christ doesn't just save us. His person and work makes us sons and daughters. I, if that doesn't inspire holy living in us, His children, nothing will. To think that we belong to the infinite, immutable, holy, sovereign, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present God who created everything with a handful of words, that we are His sons and daughters, that Christ died not just to save, but to make sure that our adoption was in place so that we could be owned by this phenomenally massive, awesome God. I, that is just almost too much to take. Especially when you come from a broken home. Especially when you have an earthly father who failed you. In every way. Some of you know what I'm talking about. Not just my testimony, but you know what's happened to you. And some of you have incredible fathers. And I think having an incredible father like Matt and, and others in here, it, 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 it helps us embrace our great God because we had a good fatherly example. But I tell you what, when you have a bad earthly fatherly example it makes it tough to comprehend the goodness of god because your reference point is the disaster with two legs who left your mom and cheated on her it has taken me many many years to come to terms to come to terms with that and it has been through the ongoing steady faithfulness it's so crazy that God doesn't have to prove himself to anyone, but let me tell you what he's done in my life. He has proved himself. Where all others have failed, he has succeeded and exceeded all expectations. I can't even get my mind around being his son. Can you? That's who you are, Christian. To be loved by Abba in this way? You know, earthly fathers can be a blessing or a curse, but there isn't an earthly father who could, who could do what God has done for us. They couldn't make an offering that would be sufficient to subdue the wrath of God and His righteous holiness. And I mean, just... Think of what God the Father has done for you. What no one else could ever do. By offering up the apple of His eye, Christ. Does that not illustrate how much He loves His adopted sons and daughters? Enough to slaughter and crush His Son 
so that he could make us sons and daughters. That is a staggering truth. That's just too much sometimes. Especially as you grow in the faith and know how bad you are. David knew this and he cried out, why would you be mindful of someone like me? And to be mindful of someone like me forever and from eternity past. Oh, it's, it's unreal. It, it, it is. It's why we call it good news. It's the gospel. Paul knew there was, you know, goofballs, but he knew it had been blessed with all these wonderful things, this divine fellowship. He was super thankful for this. The glorious reminder in verses 8 and 9, as well as the other texts, but ultimately it was meant to soften the Corinthians, prepare them, set the stage for the opening imperative in verse 10. You know, God loves these people so much, He crushed His Son for them, but He loved them enough to correct them too. He disciplines, He chastens those whom He loves. This church was plagued by carnal unity, divisions, and cliques which is really the antithesis of intimate fellowship with God's Son, right? He just talks about divine fellowship, that they have the blessing of it, and they're really not experiencing it because they're clicky and they're divisive. And I'll tell you this, I think that divisive Christians are a greater threat to the body of Christ than non-Christians. They can inflict deep spiritual wounds that seriously injure their brothers and sisters. They must be gently called out, corrected, and even cleared from the congregation if they won't come to their senses and stop causing trouble, especially over tertiary or secondary theological issues. We are to make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace, Ephesians 4.3 this requires humility, gentleness, patience, unconditional love, Ephesians 4:2. And we are to simultaneously stand firm in the faith, 1 Corinthians stand firm in the faith, 1 Corinthians 16:13. What does that mean? It means we don't compromise the truth to maintain unity. Some doctrines are worth dividing over. You're supposed to divide over them. But we are called to speak the truth in love, Ephesians 4.15, always, always, especially when confronting dissenters. What are we to be known for? Is it our status in the church? No. Is it our theological acumen, acuity, and ability to win arguments? Heavens, no. Is it our grandiose or better yet gruesome social media feeds where we slam our political opposites? No, 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 no. Is it our castles, country clubs, cars, and clothes? No. It is our love for one another. That is how all people inside and outside the church will know we are Jesus' disciples. John 